Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. In this one, I speak with Ben Rudman, co-founder and CEO of MMT Digital. As you'll hear today, Ben jumped straight into business with a friend after graduating from university, originally selling educational CD-ROMs. And for those of our younger listeners, if you're not sure what they are, those were the App Store before the App Store existed. This is how you used to put programs on your computer. And now after a steady start selling those CD-ROMs, Ben and his co-founder decided to take it up a gear and really shift the focus of the business. And since then, MMT has gone from strength to strength, evolving from that educational CD-ROMs business that I talked about to a leading digital consultancy, working with a huge list of impressive corporate clients. Ben's journey is truly fascinating. And as he admits in today's episode, has involved plenty of ups and downs along the way, something that he shares huge insights on in today's conversation. In this one, we delve into the ups and downs of building a business at such a young age and how Ben and the team have been able to scale MMT 
growing from what Ben calls a family and friends business into the digital consultancy they are today. We cover a whole range of topics in this one, including how Ben and the team were able to kickstart that acceleration over the past decade and go from a relatively small agency to become the 200-person consultancy they are today. We look at how they were able to attract top talent from their base in Uppingham, a small town in the UK not known for its tech industry. And we talk about the team's passionate belief in doing the right thing and why this has fueled their drive to achieve B Corp status. Whether you are looking to establish your own startup consulting business, understand how you can bring top talent on board to fuel that growth, or you're looking for ways to scale your firm further, Ben has a huge amount of knowledge that you can learn from. I really enjoyed this one, and I think you will too. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ben Rudman. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Lovely to be here. So we've got a lot to cover today, um, but I always like to start with a question to, to help my listeners place my guests. And, and for yourself, I'd love if you could give a bit of background on, on how you got to where you are and your career overview to date. Sure. Well, I'd like to say I had a really clear clear plan of uh, knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but um, I, I didn't at all. And um, I'm very jealous of anyone that does. One of my daughters has a very, very clear idea that she wants to be wants to be a nanny. And that's what she's always known since she's been eight. But um, unfortunately, that wasn't that wasn't me. So as I was leaving university, um, and I'd done a, a business management degree, I'd done a dissertation on um, educational CD-ROMs in the education sector in A-levels. At, uh, this was back in 1998, 1999. And I was I've got a horrible th- feeling, Ben. You might need to explain for some of our younger listeners what a CD-ROM is. Oh, CD-ROM, that's a, a completely historical item that the internet used to basically live on. No, it was a, it, it's a, a storage device which uh, where before you could go onto the internet and look at a website and see pretty much anything you wanted to you had to store it in a different way and it was, it was stored in a cd-rom and they were used predominantly within schools for um, specific subjects or for for education and training and they were they were quite new back in the in the sort of mid and late 90s and i'd done my dissertation on a on, on this tiny tiny sort of part-time business that my friend and his dad uh, had been running and um they sort of said as we were finishing university hey why don't we why don't we have a go and see if we can get it to get it to work full time and so and so we did and so mmt mmt digital as it is now but mmt limited or uh, multimedia textbooks actually as it started off which is what mmt stands for was born back in uh, in sort of july of 1999 and we sort of started out with that and then very quickly quickly grew out into doing websites, which were sort of in their infancy back then uh, with very, very slow internet connection speeds. And the things sort of very slowly took off from there. We were working out of out of my, my co-founder's bedroom, so a guy called James Cannings, who I've known since he's six weeks old. So we've got a sort of lovely story of knowing each other for a very, very long time and starting this uh, business up, having been to school together and weirdly ending up at university together doing completely different things. But he was he was he was on the tech side because he's got a background in computer science and uh, he was doing all the programming and I was on the sort of marketing and the sales side and, and, and covering that side of things and we started up in in you know in his bedroom on his parents' house back where we both living living with our parents trying to trying to bootstrap a business basically and it was not an immediate success is probably probably the best way to describe it is that we'd never had been in business we didn't really know what we were doing and we sort of bumbled along and made loads and loads of mistakes and 
it was probably a slow way to learn, but they're lessons that I think stick with you because once you've, you know, you've made them, you try not to make them again as you, as you, as you go. And the business, I guess, grew organically slowly over probably a 10 year window from 99 to probably 2009, 2010. And we were probably up to about 20 people, but we describe it as a sort of friends and family business at that point. We were outside of London in this little little rural town called Uppingham, which is where our parents had both been teachers at a school there. And we'd sort of started there and grown the business there. And then because we started employing people, um, we, we, we'd sort of ended up being based there. And we were doing a mixture of the educational CD-ROMs, building websites for some commercial clients as well. And and also doing some video work actually on CD-ROM at the time. So we'd sort of got this quite disparate set of services that we were providing for, for some really interesting companies and some great clients, but the business didn't have a particularly clear direction at that point. And that's sort of where, where we sort of grew up from and, and, and spent 10 years sort of, I guess, not getting it wrong, but not getting it right either, I think is probably a good way to sort of describe the first 10 years of the business. Well, then, because... I know we're going to come on to it over today. For my listeners' benefit, could you give the, I guess, the accelerated what happened next? Because obviously we're going to dive into, I think, a lot of that today. So you got to 20 people, 10 years. You're a lot bigger now. There's you know, multiple businesses that you work with. Could you just give the, the potted history of that sort of next, I guess, next 10, next 20 years? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think that we we sort of got there and James and I were pleased with where we got to and we had a great group of people we were working with within the company and some lovely clients but we weren't necessarily achieving what we'd sort of perhaps got set out to do when we'd started the business both of us had kids relatively young and so priorities you know business family life all got tied up and and you know that was an opportunity for us to sort of step back and and look at what we wanted to do and we decided at that point we were going to really try and drive the company forwards over the next over the next five years or so. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to become the number one Kentico partner. So Kentico is a content management system in the tech world, which is used for creating websites essentially and so that people can more easily update them and manage the content that sits on them. And Kentico was a burgeoning platform at that point, a Czech company. And we were, although we were working with them back at that point, we were a long way down the partner rankings and and didn't know their business particularly well. And we made a very conscious decision that we were going to become the number one partner in the UK and really try and build a great working relationship with that business and, and become really expert in it for our clients. At the same time, I think the other thing that happened within the business is that we had an opportunity to work with one of our clients on a on this new way of working called agile delivery and sort of the way that the projects were actually delivered together. And back in 2010, uh, 2011, when we first started doing that, that was really unheard of within the UK and had, had actually come over from the US with this particular client who were Pearson, the, the big publishing company. And got an opportunity to work on this agile project and that's sort of revolutionized the way in which MMT was delivering projects for clients and the working relationships that we had together and both of those things together meant that over the following five years we then were able to grow the business from from a sort of 20 people business up to about a 60 people business in sort of 2015 and uh, the, the, the business grew from there and I guess at that point, we were still based predominantly in Uppingham, which is not the digital heartland of the UK, um, although it's a lovely place to be. And we had a had a small-ish office down in, in London um, at that point. We were not particularly, I guess, confident from a business point of view or a business people point of view that we were, you know, we were looking for external input as to how we could really take the company up to the next level and be able to move it forward. And 
So we took the decision that we were going to sell the business with a view to staying with it, but to try and use that as a as a mechanism to be able to scale the organization as we as we went forward. So we we sold the business to a, a very small listed startup. So it was a stock market, it was on the AIM stock market business called Beherd, which had been founded by a very entrepreneurial guy who had grown up his own agency in the, the, the late 70s and 80s and then grown that business up further and and gone basically through the agency sector in, in London and the UK and was very well networked and sort of knew his way around the whole thing. And we decided to, to go down that route. And we were the second company into, into Beherd in this very small listed vehicle, which from our point of view was was quite risky, but was also really interesting because it gave us a chance to try and be part of something small that was going to grow and we could help to shape what that might look like as we as we grew the organization out. And the aspiration for Be Heard was to try and get towards being this uh, 100 million pound revenue business over a over a sort of five year window. That was sort of what we were hoping we were going to be able to achieve by both growing the businesses that were in it and also acquiring businesses as we went doing doing something called a buy and build as we as we were going along. And for one reason or another that I won't go into in massive detail, that didn't necessarily didn't necessarily play through. And we got to a point in 2018 where the some of the businesses were performing as we'd hoped that they would do. Others were were not necessarily achieving what they had hoped that they were going to. And there was some changes on the, the board side within Beherd that meant that my role, and at that point I was the CEO of MMT, was asked to also act as the COO of Beherd and come across and help to look after the the five businesses within within Beherd, uh, as well as um, sort of look after MMT as well which for me was a, a really interesting experience. I'd sort of gone from uh, looking after a company of 65 people over the two years or three years that we'd been part of Beherd, MMT had grown from sort of 65 people to about 130. So we had, had a much bigger business within MMT. And then there were four other businesses within Beherd with another couple of hundred people uh, across those four businesses, all in different sectors of uh, marketing services. So whereas MMT was in websites, the other four businesses were in, were in other parts of the marketing services industry. And I then spent the next couple of years uh, working with those businesses, which was a really interesting environment from my point of view, not only learning more about those businesses and getting to work with some great management teams, but also understanding how a listed business operates and what the requirements are for shareholders and for the city and for uh, a board of a listed company as well. And the company performed uh, relatively well, but we were in a position whereby being on the stock market probably wasn't going to be the best long-term solution or the best long-term home for Beherd. And so we looked at what our options were and decided that we were going to try and take Beherd off, off the market and to then find a, a new home for it, which was either likely to be directly with a, a sort of private equity company and use it as something to grow from or into another into another organization for whom Be Heard would be a, a good home and the companies and particularly the people and the clients would see some real synergies and benefits of being part of another company. And so in 2020, Be Heard was sold into a, a business called uh, MSQ, MSQ Partners, which is a larger marketing services business. And that is where we are currently and have been for the last year. Fantastic, Ben. Well, well, thank you for for giving both chapters. And I think there's a lot in that journey, isn't there? uh, From, as you say, sort of 20 of you in Uppingham to to where you are now with with MSQ. And I'm keen to dig into all of it because I think there's a lot of different stages in that journey that you've you've been on. And I want to come back to, and and just because I think it's a really interesting point you made to the sort of MMT, I guess that transition period from 20 and to the decision to scale, because 
that feels like quite an inflection point for you and James. And it's also something that I think I see a lot of consultancies, agencies, you know, all services businesses. There are a lot of services businesses that struggle to break past that to sort of to your to use your words, friends and family size. You know, it's really successful. Everyone's very comfortable and happy, but they don't get that, I guess, escape velocity. And you mentioned, I guess, the things that enabled you to grow, but there had to be that decision. And I'd love to to know if there was a sort of conversation or a series of conversations that, that led you and James to go, you know what, actually, we, we're we going to, it's time to grow this. Because I imagine at 20 people, you were both, you know, quite comfortable, the good business, you know, you, you mentioned you had kids, you had family. So, you know, you, you assume presumably sort of financially, you were okay. Going then to scale the way you did is quite a big undertaking. What was it that led you to say, right, we're going to do this and take up those opportunities around Agile that you mentioned versus, say, staying in your lane and being very comfortable with the size of business you were? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's a, a really interesting question. I guess not something I've probably thought about for 10 plus years, but it it, it's, it will have been, I think, we, we were, you know, probably in the situation you describe. When you look back at it, I think at the time, and I guess for all businesses that are 20 people, it, it perhaps never feels that comfortable when you're, and you know, I don't think necessarily that changes the bigger you get or the, the smaller you get, to be honest. it's It never feels particularly comfortable in the moment. And, you know, James and I are quite a good balance of characters. I'd say that was a real benefit for the business. James is the eternal optimist, and I tend to be a bit more of a glass half empty from that point of view, which I think, you know, gets up his nose as much as he's always saying that, you know, that didn't work, but hey, look at all this over here it tends to uh, annoy me. But we, we've we known each other for so long that it, it, it's such a good relationship from that point of view that it just sort of, sort of rolls over. And so where we were was that we could see that Agile had come in and that it gave us a real opportunity to be able to work in a different way with our clients. And that really was one of the sort of the key founding things that enabled us to be able to say, actually, if we can get the business up to 50 people, then actually we can provide a better service for our clients. Because one of the risks you have as a, you know, at that size of business of 20 is that you perhaps can only have one or two of each of the kinds of functions of people that you need. And so you're quite dependent upon them and clients are quite dependent on them. And so what you're trying to do is provide some redundancy through scale. And as we headed more into sort of the 50 to 60 bracket, because we were quite focused on the services we were providing, then actually we had that sort of greater redundancy of from a client protection point of view. And so there was an active decision about how can we provide a better service to our clients, our customers, as we scale the business upwards and that some of it you know i'd like to say was you know exactly what we were trying to do but for, for people who are in the sort of consulting agency world you know a lot of these things are like buses and and so you know nobody likes to sort of turn down opportunities as they come along and you then have to react to those things as, as they go i mean some of our growth was quite structured we managed to grow the revenue and the, the size of the business in a fairly structured way it wasn't sort of it didn't do sort of two million a year then five million then three million then six million it, it, it sort of was incrementally growing across that period of time and we were very fortunate in that we had some great people within the business who were, you know, very committed to to to, to the organisation at 20 people and were equally committed at 50, 60 people. And, you know, then some of them are not necessarily with us as we've got to sort of over 200 people now because it's a, an MMT, because it's a it's a different business at, at that size. But, you know, I, I remember those times very, very fondly as we were going through that process because it's a great bonding experience within an organisation as you are going through the challenges that you face and everything else as you're sort of growing the organisation up through, through that side of things. I think having a focus on 
being competitive at something and really knowing what we were going to achieve was also a difference for us as an organization prior to that because digital and websites are such a big sphere you can sort of get pulled into doing anything we made we actively started making conscious decisions that we were not going to do that we were specifically going to do this and this is what we were going to focus on and that also gave the business focus and allowed us to sort of drive into those directions as well so as we scaled we were putting process into the business and we were putting in ways of working which are not necessarily common i think in probably a lot of agencies i think they're probably more common in consultancies and so we ended up in a sort of a hybrid set up where we saw ourselves as part consultancy but also part agency because of the nature of who we were competing with and who we were working with as well and ended up in a position which actually helped us to be able to scale because we weren't necessarily dependent upon people as we were scaling we were more dependent upon the process side of things and all of that working i think that's that's a really interesting point and just so to clarify for my understanding that those were sort of how we do what we do processes. So if someone came to you for a, a new website or a new project, it was it was building that sort of that IP around the methodology, if you like, as opposed to just having 20, 30 good people who could figure it out themselves, if you like. It, exactly, yeah. So that, you know, if we had one client who came to us for something over here, another client who came to for something over there, that they got a very consistent experience in terms of the process that was followed to go through that. So that People in the teams on our side, if they were moving between projects, weren't suddenly having to adjust hugely because the process or the the way that we were working with client A was totally different from the way that we were working with client B. And that was quite effective and and continues to be a key part of the way that MMT operates today in terms of having quite clear processes about the way that it it delivers the work that it delivers. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I want to come on to your point around being I guess, selective in the type of work you did and that focus. And am I right, you mentioned earlier around the sort of Kentico piece. Was that the decision you're referring to there? Because it just before I asked the next question. Yeah, it, it, it was. And so we went through, I think, probably sort of two key phases whereby Kentico was a, you know, it's a relatively niche product in a niche space to start with. And although it's more high profile now, it was relatively low profile at that point. And we were, we were trying to help to expand its profile, both for Kentico's benefit, but also for our own as well, because we thought it was a really good platform. There were other platforms around at that time that were bigger and more well known, but we decided to carve out a niche for ourselves and, and decided that actually that was a really good way to get the business to a certain point. What we then discovered as we sort of got up to around 50 people is that we'd sort of dominated that niche to a degree and that we needed to find another way to be able to take the business on beyond there. And so, you know, I think that the concept you know, of going into a niche is a really good idea. It gets you a certain point. It's it's how you then take the niche forwards from there. And, and MMT then had to reinvent itself. And we find typically the business has to has to reinvent itself probably every three to four years, partially because of the technology changes that occur, but also because of the nature of the the market in which we are in it it adjusts quite rapidly as well there's a lot in there that i want to find out about bank and i think let's just because i'm quite simple and like to go in chronological order let's start at the start of the kentico journey and then i'm really interested to dig into your point there around reinvention and I'll, i'll sort of set it up by saying because i i think given the success you had i'm sure it's would be very easy to say well no let's keep riding this wave that's you know doing us very well why put the effort into a a new wave if you like but I'd, i'd love to actually dig into the kentico piece and the reason i say this is what wasn't, I guess, very common back then, I'm, I'm seeing more and more now, there's a lot of, you know, you take, say, the RPA world, there's a lot of service providers or, or platforms that are partnering with with consultancies or consultancies are partnering with them. I mean, you've seen the same in the data space, you know, Tableau was, was huge sort of, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. I'd love to understand 
I guess, how you decided it was Kentico and then how you made that work. Because I think there's a lot of firms that I've seen who sort of nail their colors to the mast of a particular you know, software offering and almost then are beholden to the success of the software offering as opposed to being able to make their own success. So, you know, as I say, Tableau was the prime example. I There were a whole myriad of Tableau consultancies a few years ago. Tableau went out of fashion and suddenly these businesses sadly are no longer around. And for those who are now venturing into things like RPA where this is a live issue, how did you decide this niche product was the right thing? And then how did you manage to build a business around it such that you were successful as a result of your efforts, not simply sort of riding the coattails of Kentico. Yeah. So I guess like a lot of these things, it's a bit of timing, it's a bit of luck and, and perhaps some good judgment, which was not my good judgment, I hasten to add. So we were at a point where we were, previous to that, we were actually building, um, which was quite common in the UK at that point, building our own content management system and, and agencies would typically have built their own content management system. What became massively clear as we sort of went to a point of selecting Kentico um, sort of through 2007, 2008 was that that was really, really going to cost a lot of investment time. And because we were bootstrapping, we, you know, whereas today it's more common to go out and raise, have a business idea, proof it in the market, go out and raise some pre-seed round money and get backing to do it and, and give up some of your shareholding as an option really was not something that was on our radar and was much, much harder to do in the UK back when we were selling the company up. And I, if I'm honest, I don't think we'd have known how to do it, even if it had been more common at that point, because neither of us had any business experience and we were sort of just making it up as we went along. But it wasn't really an option and, and we weren't probably best placed to do it. We didn't have the skill set to build our own content management system. So we were in the process of, of reviewing what was available on the market. And the things that we reviewed are all still available today on the market, which is, you know, from their point of view, is a, is a great credit to them as products as they've evolved with the market and with the technology, particularly, which has changed quite a lot over that time. And I won't name the other names, but we looked at three other parties, one of which we ruled out because it didn't necessarily line up with the technology stack, which we wanted to work on, one of which we decided we were going to be a very small fish in quite a big pond. And therefore, it was going to be difficult for us to get the traction that we wanted at a at a partner level, and one of which uh, we couldn't actually get a reply from. And therefore, that was kind of a, a no-no. But Kentico, we looked at and was relatively new at that point of time. Uh, it, was a, it was quite a small company back then, probably only about 20 people as well. Well, so it was quite risky and they were none of the products we were looking at were actually UK based because none of the, none of the major content management system platforms are, are, are developed in the UK. And so they were check based and we got some really good customer or, or, or sort of engagement with them very early on about supporting with the platform. They were looking to build out a partnership network within the UK and we were in a position where we thought that the technology was both cost effective for our clients that we had at the time, but also was a really flexible piece of software. And so we made that decision off the back of, and once we'd kind of done our due diligence, ruled the other two that were in the running at that point out for, for the reasons I've sort of outlined. And that was done by one of our technology directors at the time who is still with the business now. And so the credit is really his from that point of view. And we sort of grew that from there. And we went into it with two very clear points of view. One was that we wanted to build a very strong relationship with Kentico, with the provider, both at a technical level, but also at a commercial level and a relationship level. And the second was that we were going to then be very clear that we were focused on delivering that in the sector in which we were operating within the UK for websites. 
And I'm interested because obviously that relationship was very successful for you. And when we spoke before, you were talking about how you you wanted to be the UK number one partner. You ended up being the global number one partner. So you've 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 obviously you know you've sort of carved a path into how to do that successfully. And actually, I'd be intrigued on that that relationship side, how you achieved that, how you made that work with the partner. Because again, I think this is something that I know I, I've seen with other firms where they, yes, they have a partnership, but that partnership feels very one sided or doesn't feel like they're getting the benefit they could. How, how did you, I guess, work with Kentico to, both, to give you the results you wanted, but obviously, you know, the clients they wanted as well? So I think we were very lucky. And I think that's where the, the luck part really came in is that um, Kentico is, is run by uh, a guy called Peter Pallas, who is a originally was the programmer of the product. So he's a product guy. He really gets the product and the technology and he knows it inside out. And so that is where he really drives Kentico from. And so we ended up sort of working with this this business that was owner managed and was scaling uh, alongside us as we were scaling and that we got to know uh, a number of the you know more senior people within the organization both on the technical side and on the sales side and, and, and across that and that they have continued and and you know we still have an excellent relationship with them now um, as we continue to sort of evolve what we're what we're doing together uh, and they have continued to to grow their business I think that you know last time I was aware they're up around sort of 250 300 people mark so they have scaled their organization really really effectively but again they they've done it by doing it themselves and therefore retained control of what they wanted to do as they grew their vision out the other thing they've managed to do is is look at the technology. And rather than, as you say, you know, there are a number of legacy platforms that either decided just to cash in and, and basically use them as cash cows or, or or not, you know, weren't aware of the changes that were coming, didn't read the market correctly. Kentucky have had this dual track approach for a number of years, whereby cloud-based software has become a, a much more common thing. Back when we started doing this, that was not a thing. And these were all kind of server-based installed big enterprise platforms. And they've sort of done, run this very successful dual track of building out cloud software alongside it, which has actually become one of the, the market-leading pieces of cloud-based content um, provision as well. So, we, you know, that that's I'd like to take some credit for that, but I can't. It's it's all them. They've done a you know an amazing job with that with that business and with that organisation, both in terms of the technology, but also in terms of how they've scaled that out as they've grown around the world as well. Something that, to your point on luck versus, I guess, sort of judgment that you know, you mentioned around a niche, and, and you know, again, this might have been sort of fortuitous or it might have been been planned, but that's something that you know, in what we do as a as a marketing agency, we, we're constantly talking to to consulting firms about, and those that have been most successful are ones that niche down. But as you know, we both know, and and pretty much anyone listening to this knows. That can be quite nerve-wracking, particularly when you know you were a twenty-person business. Actually, how did you decide to stay niche, and how did you maintain that? Because I imagine it would have been very easy to say, "Well, yes, we'll be Kentico sort of first, but if people want to use you know platform X, Y, or Z, you mentioned the sort of four, yeah, go on, we'll do that." You know, how did you and James really, I guess, keep? maybe keep your nerve or keep true to that sort of focus and and stay niche or go niche and and not do a project here because someone you know they're they're dangling quite a big check in front of you you'll veer from that how did you maintain that niche and and i think that's sort of why you know our positioning worked for a period of time and then why we changed it so as we were scaling the organization probably 
2010 to 2014 that was perfect and so we were able to say you know this is what we do the market was big enough inside that niche for us to be able to go and compete with a a number of other providers in that space and to be successful um in 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 that as it was a growing market at that point as well so we were operating in a market that was growing for content managed websites in a niche where Kentico was a provider in that niche. And so that was kind of big enough. But as we grew across that period of time, particularly sort of got 2014, 2015, we realized that actually that niche was going to be a limiting factor for us. And if we wanted to keep on growing the organization out, and particularly as we started talking to clients as they got larger about the fact that not necessarily that Kentico wasn't the right product, but they didn't necessarily want to be told that that was the only option to them as you started. And so we then repositioned into a, a, a much more sort of at that point it was what we described as a sort of design and build agency whereby we would be able to sort of work through customer experience and then be able to give a variety of choices around the technology that sat behind the platform the the, the reality was that as we continue to analyze the market kentico was very often still the the right product for most of these clients because it did 95% of what the other three platforms which we were still competing against did at that point in time but it was considerably more cost effective and for the 5% of things that it didn't have, hardly any of the clients ever use those functions and so forth. Therefore, it was a complete waste of money in trying to in trying to sort of get all that up and running. And so we continued with that. We just changed our positioning, but then continued to evolve our relationship and, and working pattern with Kentico. It's not like we stopped working with them in 2015. It continued and has expanded and continues to expand in terms of the working relationship that we have with them. To that point around, I guess, staying alive to it, I guess the, the follow-up would be, how, how did you do that? Because again, if things were going well with Kentico, you weren't in a, I guess, a, you know, there wasn't a burning platform making you change. How did you and the team stay alive? You mentioned they analyzing the market. Was this just something you did regularly and checked in? Was it something clients, you know, it was client-led? Was it strategic and sort of looking three years out, knowing you had to expand your service offering to achieve your, your growth goals? How did you stay alive to that and know the time to start diversifying as opposed to just riding the Kentico train for as long as it went and not not sort of looking up and looking around? So I, I think uh, I'd love to say it was strategic and it was a massive decision at that point, um, but the business wasn't mature enough. We weren't mature enough really to be able to probably, I think, analyze the business back at that point and make those kinds of decisions. It was probably much more gut feel in terms of actually making the decision, but the information that we were getting was, I guess, coming from you know, when you're pitching a lot and at that size of business, you know, James and I were still involved in a lot of the pitches that were ongoing. We were getting quite a lot of feedback that was coming out of those things. But also we had a really great team around us and people who really could see what else was coming, but also were doing lots of research in the markets and they were sort of aggregating information. So we were, we were getting a lot of information to be able to sort of see what was coming. And you could also obviously hear the wider industry conversations about what what was going and how it, how it fitted in as well. And OMT's always been in a slightly weird position where it, historically described itself as an agency but never ended up really competing against many of the other sort of marketing services agencies because it didn't really provide any marketing services at all so it quite commonly was described as a digital agency but in reality that means many different things to to, to lots of different people because it covers such a wide swathe of services and, and MMT doesn't really fit into that bucket but we didn't have a better way of describing it or if we did no one else understood what we were talking about when we went to market with it so we kind of kind of were limiting ourselves to some degree with um with with how that went but it was I guess just operating within within that sphere the, the the access to the market bit was was slightly more complicated. We tended to try and network outside of London just because we we weren't London centric. We were we were based sort of an, an hour and a half north of London, and we didn't at that point really 
know our way around around the London setup and and the digital industry. A lot of the a lot of the Adam Marcom's industry, which were which are obviously very closely interlinked, are, are very London centric or were very very London centric. Now then, they're slightly less so now, but but we're very very London centric, and we we weren't really a part of that at that point. Well, as, as someone who's based in Bath, um, I fully uh, empathise with you, Ben, and, and I think there's a lot outside of uh, London. And actually, I think that brings us nicely on onto probably the other side of the, the sort of that early MMT story, which is is the people side. Now, I'll let you maybe start. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of ask a two part. You can you can pick up start where you see you see fix. I think there's there's one question for me, and, and this is in part, I'll be honest, selfishly. You know, Bath is a is a bigger city than Uppingham is, but we have the same challenges around getting people to work here. So I think one one part for me is how you were able to attract talent to Uppingham because it's it's not, as you say, it's not a tech heartland. You're not just getting people moved there from university on the off chance of a job. I think then the other side is actually about growing the team and maintaining that culture as you grew. And obviously those sort of reinforce because you need the people for the culture. But I'll kind of let you decide which... Which one is the better place to start? You know, how you were able to go from two of you to twenty to fifty in Uppingham, or how you were able to build and maintain that culture as you did, so that you, to your point, you didn't lose people in the early days when you said, "No, we're not going to be a twenty-person business. We're, we're going for growth." Yeah. Well, as I've, I've sort of relayed earlier, I mean, the, the starting there was was more happenstance than, um, than than strategic planning from a sort of geographical location, but. Oddly, there are there are pros and cons to where we, where the business started. So from a and that's also changed over time. I mean, we're obviously at the moment talking where people are really working from anywhere. I don't really like the phrase of working from home. So it suggests that you know, you know that you can only work in two places. When in reality, for a lot of the work, certainly the people within most of our sectors, do you can you can to a degree really work from anywhere. I guess it's where is the most value that you are getting the work done from. But back. In 1999, 2000, you know, you were in the office. It was nine to five thirty, and so on and so forth. And it was very, very standard, and everyone was expected to be in. And we had um, really were, you know, as you start a small business, your decision to employ people becomes a very, very big decision. It's, you know, do I employ the first person, second person, third person? Because, you know, can I actually be in a position where I can pay this person's salary in three months' time? You know, you don't want to be in a position where you can't pay it in four months' time kind of thing. So it's, you know, what's the best way to be able to scale those out? And particularly if you're bootstrapping, that becomes quite a a difficult decision. And again, you'll know this from being the marketing services industry is that uh, contracts aren't that long very commonly. And therefore, you can probably only see your revenue. We were lucky most of the time we could only see revenue for six weeks out when we were probably up to 10 years old and so you just have to operate on the basis that you you know that it'll continue to be okay because it's been okay for the last 10 years but when you've only been doing it for six months or a year it's very very nerve-wracking I found it you know really challenging from that side of things but in terms of sort of starting the business up I guess the the upside to not being in London was that we were able to attract people who had made a conscious decision that they weren't going to be based in London and and had moved up here and having had jobs in London or who decided to be based outside of London for for family reasons. So what we had was quite a sticky workforce who very few of them were actually living in Uppingham, but were who were commuting in from the towns around us. And we had a number of sort of, uh, we have a couple of cities in, in Leicester and Peterborough, which are about 20 miles away with good road access, and then a number of smaller towns uh, around us. And that enabled us to sort of scale the business based upon access to those people. But there was a sort of limiting factor to that. And the other thing that 
was, has been really, really positive for the business and continues to be. I'm really pleased to sort of just see it going from strength to strength is that we have since I think about 2004 had placement students working within the business whereby they will come and spend the third year of their university degree working inside MMT in a variety of different capacities. When they first came in, they were doing literally everything because they were probably employee number eight or nine. So, they were, you know, there would be a whole range of things that they were doing. And then they'd spend their fourth year and go back to university. Whereas today we have a placement students who are working with our HR teams, who are working with our UX teams, who are working with our development and cloud services teams and uh, and across the whole business, really. And that has meant that we have had some fantastic people come into the business, uh, an opportunity to sort of really get to grips in a relatively small organization for their third year placement. And we've been very lucky in that many of them have chosen to come back to MMT when they have left university. And because they obviously know the culture very, very well, having spent a year there, then become sort of cultural leaders for the organization as they come back into it. So really lovely stories are that our our current CTO uh, and our current head of finance are both came to us and their placement students many, many years ago and have then come back into the business and grown with the business over that period of time. So that has has really helped from, from that point of view. And we're, we're in the process of sort of, and over the last couple of years, we've been expanding those types of schemes out to not only work with placement students, but also recent graduates and also people who are looking at career changes. And we're hoping over the next year or so to also be able to work alongside recent school leavers as well to be able to bring young young people who are looking for either their first taste of digital or engineering or whatever it happens to be inside the service MNT does or for those who are looking for a sort of change of career as well. So those things helped us to be able to sort of build out the workforce around Uppingham. Just before you go on to the, the second part, because I'm I'm really interested in this, and it's obviously worked for you. To your point, around sort of, you know, those in your business who have climbed from those those placement years, and and this may sound like a really simple question: How did you even go about finding those placements? Because I think obviously now, you know, MMT and, and MSQ, you're, you're a big business, you're a sort of established business, and a university, I suspect, will look at you and go, "Yeah, this is a good place for for our students to go and do placements." When it was five or six or seven of you, I'm sure there was a maybe a concern for you or the universities of like, well, is this really somewhere we want our students spending a year? It might have actually been really easy, but how did you get on those, I don't know, PSLs or or whatever the lists are to get students applying? Because I think, you know, to your point, that's a really good way, obviously, of getting some great junior talent, road testing them for a year and the ones that enjoy it and you think are good for your business stay. How, How did you do that? We we were very lucky in that we struck up a relationship with Leicester de Montfort University, and that was kind of the place that this all started. And so they were 20 miles down the road. We would go in and do presentations to their cohort of, you know, X hundred students who were doing a, a programming degree uh, or a computer science degree. Um, it tends to be computer science back then. It's become much more varied over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, but tends to be computer science and sort of do a presentation and then they'd fill in the form and, and, you know, they might be interested. And we were, I guess we weren't going to be Rolls-Royce or any of the other big employers around the region at that kind of time. But we were, I guess, offering something a bit different from that point of view. And actually, we were really pleasantly surprised and had loads and loads of people applying to the point where we were, we were having to turn the vast majority of them uh, away because we just, you know, we, we were a company of 10 or 15 people. We cannot have 10 or 15 students in the business as well. It wouldn't just wouldn't have worked. Um, and over the last five or six years, we've broadened that program out of working with universities uh, across the UK and having people applying from, from, from all over the place, both as the nature of the applications have changed, but also as MMT has become perhaps a little more well-known than, than it used to be back then. 
I think that sounds great, and I, I'll be honest, I'm taking notes myself, Ben, because we've got in Bath we have two universities, and both I think do placement years. And and was there ever a concern? And again, I say this, you know, both both myself, but also listeners of you know, junior talent is brilliant and is can be the future of your business, but it also comes with quite an overhead because you know these these students they've never had a sort of an office job, for want of a better word. And how did you balance that tension to ensure you got the best out of? those people for your business that and they got a good experience but it wasn't a case that you James or your colleagues you know were having to spend almost another job helping them get up to speed with the job they were doing does that does that make sense yeah it does um, I mean I think if I'm if I'm honest you know it was very much a wasn't sink or swim for them as they, as they came along because it wasn't they weren't allowed to sink but it was very much they were very much brought in as part of what we were doing very quickly and so they they very quickly got up to speed. We were all in our 20s at that point. You know, they were probably in their early 20s. So they sort of fitted in from a social point of view. We weren't huge numbers of people. And so from, from that point of view, it, it was absolutely fine. Now, there are very structured programs. HR manages the entire thing, thank God. And they do a great job of, uh, of looking after all of these all of these guys and girls that come into the business. But back then, it was a very different environment whereby, no, you're quite right. We couldn't spend huge amounts of time building out programs of work that they could do over the first three months. It was probably a case of spending two days getting inducted into all the processes and policies around the business. And then, hey, look, this is what we're going to do. I'd like you to have a crack at you know, trying to code this or whatever it happened to be at the time. And if they could do it, then great. If they couldn't, we'd sit down and sort of—I well, wouldn't, because I can't code anything—but somebody would sit down with them, probably James, and and help them to, um, you know, sort of work their way through it. And for for them, you know, it's sort of learning by doing. But you learn re- really, really quickly. And you know, the, the concept of something called pair programming, which is where two developers sit and code together, is is much more common now. It was wasn't really a thing in the UK. It was was in America, but it wasn't in the UK back in those times. And but typically they would sort of pair program just to sort of get stuff up get up to speed and we would find that the placement student that left us after the year was totally different to the placement student that came in and really really from their point of view had hopefully had a really good time and enjoyed it and learned an awful lot and from our point of view had become a really important part of the the the, the work teams you know we we would find it difficult that it was like oh no we've got to go through this process of you know getting somebody back up to speed or a number of people back up to speed for this period of time because it would actually have a, a an impact on the business when you're only sort of 15 20 people yeah, and I think there's there's a second part to that as well of, you know, to your point of, you've trained these people up, you can see the value. More for anyone who may be slightly sceptical, to be honest, of the, you give them a year and then are they going to go off to a Rolls Royce? How have you found that with your cohorts? And actually, has there been anything either in those early days or since that you now do to, I guess, keep that relationship with those people such that they're more inclined to come back to MMT or one of your, you know, your sister businesses in, M- in MSQ after their degree than sort of say, thanks for the year, Ben, now I'm off to Facebook, Twitter, wherever it is they're going to go. I mean, all that we're interested in really for them is that they have a great year, that they get exposed to lots of opportunities, that they can deliver what, you know, we, we i.e. they and, and, and we have agreed that they're going to deliver over that time, both for their course purposes and also for the business. And beyond that, it's, you know, really where they think that they want to take themselves. And for some, they might decide working in an agency slash consultancy is definitely not the, the right way forwards for them. Some of them have sort of come back and then gone on to start up their own businesses. Others have, have come back for a couple of years and then gone off and worked for, you know, other other big tech firms and, and others, you know, have stayed come back and, and stay and some obviously don't come back at all and they go off and do other things but 
I, I, I hope that they, you know, MMT has given all of them an opportunity to, you know, upskill themselves and and hopefully they've had a had a great time in the process. I'm I, I guess perhaps I've got older, I'm more interested in you know, seeing, enabling them to go on and do something they really enjoy. And if that happens to be MMT, that is fantastic. But it's by no means, we're not, we're not bringing them in with a view that they have to come back to MMT. It isn't kind of the, the end goal. If they love it and they're a good fit for the business, then that's a great outcome for us. Completely makes sense. And like you say, if, if they want to come back, they will. And it sounds like quite a few have and, and have stayed, which is, which is brilliant. And I, I think it was the second part of my question, and I'll sort of pick it up before we go on to the the sort of journey with Beherd and MSQ. Because I think there's a lot for us to to discuss on that, on that. But that that culture piece, and you know, thinking about what you said all the way back at the start of our conversation around, you know, some of the people who were there at twenty really liked it when it was sixty, but obviously at two hundred, it's just a different business. That's that's the nature of how business grows. I'd love to understand. You know, looking back, what were those inflection points for you in the MMT team? And what did you have to do at any of those specific stages to consciously either evolve or maintain elements of the culture such that people who were there in the beginning felt like they were still part of the same business or that you consciously decided, look, we're changing the way we're going and, and we're going to help you on that journey? What were those inflection points for you? I'm not sure they were necessarily conscious inflection points as we were kind of growing. They sort of evolved um, again as, as as some of those things. You sort of become aware of these things as you're as you're going along, I guess. And one of the benefits of hindsight is looking back and and also being able to observe other businesses. I guess at this point of being able to scale is when you've never done it before, you don't really know what you don't know. And we were definitely in that position, which was why we had sold the the, the business to be heard. As it turned out, actually, that a lot of the processes that we had were you know, things that were then used across other BeHerd businesses as well. And so although we had the input of some of the sort of the senior management from across BeHerd, we didn't necessarily have some of the things that we were hoping to from a scaling point of view. So we continued to sort of make our own decisions about how to best try and evolve the organization as we went along. I think, you know, from my own personal point of view, what I, I learned is that when we'd start the business out, I found it very difficult not to be involved in everything or to know about everything and to didn't necessarily to do it, but certainly needs to be aware of it and to touch it was learning to let go and that there are people who are much better placed and much more capable than I am in a number of areas. So building out a functional, a strong and functional management team with leadership in that team was certainly a major learning for me, which was what we tried to do as we sort of got past about 60 people, partially just because it was breaking me um, uh, and, and James and that, you know, we were realizing we weren't necessarily the right people to be able to look at some of those things because we just placed emphasis in the wrong in the wrong aspect uh, and we needed to, to have a, a wider suite of, of, of basis of, of how we do those things and so detaching ourselves from the day-to-day running of the business and we are quite detached from that now at the size that we are I think was one of the sort of the, the major learnings at around about 60 people but still being involved to be able to structure how that was going to grow out and and be able to shape, shape the strategies for each of those each of those teams and functions as they grew. And you mentioned about the the benefit of hindsight, and or you know the businesses that you you sort of seen grow since and work with. And I, I'd love to know: is there anything that now looking back on on that MMT journey or the the other businesses within MSQ that that you wish you'd done earlier, or having seen someone else do something, you wish you'd had that or done that, you know, for yourselves? Yeah, it's only for MMT. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about MMT because it's not fair for me to talk about other people's businesses really but I'll talk about MMT but the certainly we didn't necessarily invest I think probably as heavily behind the new business and marketing 
functions as we could have done as early as you know if we'd done that earlier and gone harder we would probably have been able to grow the business out more quickly than we did do we were quite reticent around that again the nature of I guess bootstrapping is that you always want to make sure that you know you've got enough of uh, cash basically to 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 cover yourselves across periods of time. And although the time frame of being able to look further ahead got longer as we were as we got bigger, it, it never is hugely hugely visible in in the, in the nature of the industries in which we operate. And therefore, certainly that that investing in those things would be something I guess we'd have probably done more of and earlier of. I think putting process into the business, which we did do at about 50 people, if we'd done it earlier, would also have been important and trying to invest into product development and R&D. And I'm very fortunate having James as a, as a, as a partner in this is that he's kind of always looking at the, he, you know, the next greatest thing. And so the challenge or the trick we have between us is, you know, there are five greatest things, which is the thing that we actually pick up and try and stick with. And then we've got to stick with it and not flick on to the next greatest thing. You know, how long do you, how long do you leave something to roll along for? And, and, you know, we were very lucky that we sort of had that dynamic, I guess, as the business was growing up. So th- those are, those are, I guess, would be the sort of the, the, the key areas is probably be a bit more confident in, you know, and this is for me, and I'm, I, you know, if, for me, it would be to more be more confident with what we were doing. I was probably a little bit too reticent with some of the some of the decisions that we made. I think there's there's an interesting point in there about getting confident or getting comfortable because you mentioned earlier, like that twelve or six week sort of you know runway is what you could see, and you know, I, I think many people listening to this will will be very familiar with that sort of be it six weeks, be it twelve weeks. You know, you've got that cliff coming where you can't see revenue beyond that. I don't know if there was anything specific or maybe the advice you give to others, but how did you or have you become comfortable enough with that to make those investments in things like sales, marketing, R&D? Because to your point earlier that just because you're a 200-person business now, not a 20, the same pressures are still there, the same runway is still there. How did you get yourself or did you and James get yourselves comfortable with making those, you know, I guess, those longer-term bets? I think that, you know, once you've been going for a number of years, you know, you suddenly realize that you're not going to wake up and the next day everything is going to is going to magically disappear and that you build these relationships with clients whereby you, you know, they may not be committing to significant projects, but you have you're clear on what they're trying to achieve with their organization. And that as long as you keep delivering to a good standard, that you are likely to be part of that journey for for a period of time. And so I guess that helped to sort of build out our our degree of confidence with some of that thinking. I think the other aspect is that you're, as we sort of group our 60 people and we were bringing in more and more people who had experience of working in other organizations, we were changing the way in which we were shaping, looking at what we were doing. I remember having a conversation with a client who who was the MD of a a very successful, and she's been a very, very successful publishing company when we were probably 15 people. And she was talking to me about their budgetary cycles. And I was thinking, why why on earth are you setting budgets? That's nuts. Just do what you want to do. But of course, when you're a business of X hundred people, having budgets is a critical facet of being able to actually run an organization and actually understand how decisions are made. And also, more importantly, to be able to delegate the responsibility down to the teams that you have. Because if they're totally dependent upon you to make the decision. All that you're doing is sort of creating this parent-child relationship whereby they just come to you and go, can I have some money, please? Whereas what you really want them to be doing is saying, okay, well, look, I trust you. I'm going to give you, you know, this amount, this pot of money and you need to make the decision about what you're going to do. And then, you know, we will look at whether you're successful or not six months down the line with various checkpoints or whatever it happens to be in there kind of thing. So I guess those are kind of my sort of looking back, <laughs> the sort of the, the, the learnings on those sides of things. I want to turn to the, I guess, the next chapter of the sort of the Be Heard story and something I know when we were speaking before this and 
you stop me if if we can't go into it or go into it as much as you can. But you, you sort of mentioned that that sale to be heard was that was actually quite risky, and I'd love to understand why that was. And sort of with that hindsight, you know, if if you were looking back, what would you be doing differently today to mitigate some of that risk? Well, I think probably just our complete naivety was, at least for my own personal stress levels, was a, was a benefit. If I'm honest, <laughs> at the time. Because we just didn't really understand the process, so we we had um, some very good advisors who were working alongside us, and and I think you know they also don't necessarily take you through all the ins and outs of what's coming because it stresses you as the founder out completely because you've got no idea, you can't control any of it. It's totally outside of your control sphere. You don't fully understand exactly what it is that's going to be happening next anyway, and and if you do, you know you, you can't change any of it. So you you may as well just carry on, you know, in this slightly naive um, naive fuck, but. We had three offers for the business at the time. We we decided to decline two of the offers, which were from much larger organisations for whom raising the funds to buy MMT was going to be much more straightforward. But in terms of selling MMT, Beherd had to go back to the stock market. So it was a very small, very, very small listed company. It was smaller than MMT. And the idea is that they'd end up doing something called a reverse takeover, whereby they'd have to sort of reverse over the top of MMT rather than bringing MMT into this listed vehicle. And to do it, they had to go back to the stock market to raise money because they hadn't raised enough to do that the first time around. And so we got to a point whereby it was, and because of the nature of the stock market, you have to make this announcement. Then they had to go and raise the funds. And then assuming you could raise enough money, then the deal would conclude. But because it was being announced to the stock market, we therefore had, communi- had to communicate it to all of our employees and all our people and, and then all of our customers as well. Um, but we had to caveat it with a this should happen kind of position because there was this you know, when we didn't really know what the risk factor was about raising the money or not. And so we're sort of everyone's going, yeah, yeah, it'll be absolutely fine. And lo and behold, it was fine. But I sort of led to believe, having had some discussions over the last couple of years, that it wasn't completely plain sailing in terms of that fundraising exercise as they, as they went through it. And so we, we sort of in this funny two month hiatus period where we were waiting for that to happen and then where it did, did successfully go through. I mean, I can only imagine how nerve wracking that those those two months must have been. I'm intrigued to your point. So just to check my understanding, you you went out for I guess a sort of trade sale. You you know you you had advisors. You went to market. That's right. Am I right there? That's right. Yes, exactly that. We had looked at some advisors. We looked at you know three or four different advisors. We we chose an advisor, and then we went through a process of of creating an information memorandum and IM uh, effectively, and that was then distributed to potentially interested parties. Back in 2015, when we started the process, really trade sale was the much more common option rather than going down the private equity route. Private equity was on the scene, but MMT was very probably too small and there were nowhere as many private equity houses interested in, in, in sort of digital transformation marketing services companies at that time. They, they hadn't sort of got their head around that than there than are today. What was it for you and Jez? You mentioned you had, you had three offers on the table, two sound quite safe, and this one sounds quite adventurous. What... What was it that led you to pick this offer over the other two? So, uh, yeah, and, and this wasn't the most financially rewarding offer either, but we felt that this actually was going to be the best result from a people point of view. So it was partially from our, from our staff point of view because 
this way we could retain control of the organization from a people point of view because in the other options we were going to be part of a much larger organization where there were lots of other people who provided those kinds of services and so we could have made the business three times bigger it would have made absolutely no difference to their financial performance overall or at all and our people were likely to be sort of lost in this melee of, of, of a very large organization whereas Behood was quite a small organization of which we had a chance to be a really exciting part of the vision that was painted for us at the time kind of thing. And, you know, I would still believe that that vision, as it was painted at the time, was the right vision. Unfortunately, we just didn't manage to execute that vision within Be Heard as, as, as we had hoped to. But the, the vision that was painted is really the direction that most of the, the sort of the, the smaller and mid-sized agency groups have actually gone in over the last four or five years. So the vision was solid. And I think that was that, you know, that was that was right. But the unfortunately, the execution due to, you know, the financial performance in a couple of the businesses meant that we weren't able to execute it as we wanted to. So you talked about the journey earlier from Be Heard into MSQ, and the, you know, that, that sounds like quite an interesting time. And again, stop me if these are things you, you can't share, but you mentioned you, you, you joined the sort of Be Heard leadership team as well. And I'd just love to, I guess, understand more about that period, because I can imagine running one business like MMT was a, was a full-time job. Then you were part of the Be Heard leadership team as well, trying to navigate what you, what you mentioned, sort of some of the businesses weren't performing as you, you wanted. Actually, how did you make that work and how, how did you navigate that period to you know to get to I guess where where you are now so I, I was working alongside a chap called Simon Piper who'd been brought in as the CFO in sort of this was April 2018 and when the board change occurred which was in I think late August of 2018 he was asked to be the the interim CEO and, and I would be the COO, and, and very quickly we struck up a, both a good working relationship, and which has since become a very good friendship, and were able to to look at what it was that we needed to do to solve the most immediate challenges that were within Be Heard, and to to do what was needed there, and to then look at what we were going to try and achieve over the next couple of years. Some of which we managed to, some of which we were unable to for one reason or another, and you know the, the reason it was very fortuitous is, is that he obviously had very strong financial skills and therefore that was kind of fundamental for uh, I guess a couple of reasons one is because we were really a, because we were a listed business it's understanding that relationship with the city and the way that you communicate with the city and what it is that they want to hear which is not necessarily the same as working with management with inside a business so for me I learned an awful lot about that side of things from Simon the, the, the other the other dynamic to it was really getting to the heart of the challenge within the operating side of uh, of Be Heard and the numbers and and getting to grips and making we didn't have to make too many really bad decisions from a from a people point of view there were a couple but the really just trying to understand that and where we should be setting things to be able to get the message right for our shareholders in, in the city and the investors um, but also for the people within the business and so. That was a really good dynamic relationship he and I had. And working across those companies was really interesting from my point of view, working with new management teams, some of which were founder-led businesses still. So the founders were still working in those businesses and some of which the founders had decided that they were going to sell the businesses and then exit. So there, there were no founders still remaining. So there were they were management teams, but with no founders. And so you had a slightly different culture from where the, the, where the founders were still within the organization having sold it as well. And so different kinds of relationships, different challenges, different sectors or different parts of the sector from everything from insights and data at one end through um, sort of creative and, and advertising into 
media services, digital media services, and actually getting people up to up to websites and, and then content and um, influencer stuff as well. So sort of full suite of services, trying to build out the Be Her brand at the same time as the individual brands and taking the whole the whole organization forwards as best as we could in, in what was a relatively tricky financial environment because of some of the historical things that were still there that were pretty difficult for us to be able to remove in the environment we were in. Certainly sounds like an interesting time. And I do want to come on to sort of your your learnings from, you know, that sort of diverse portfolio and and now with MSQ, you know, the, the portfolio of businesses that you you've got. But I just before we do go on to that, I just thought I'd touch on and this this might be a short answer or not. You know, we touched on the fact you you sold MMT and I've had a number of guests on this this show who have sold their businesses. I've I've had less who have acquired other businesses and you know sort of grown their business through through acquisition. And I'd just be interested having now, I guess, from your side, both been involved in fixing acquisitions that have gone wrong that maybe weren't your choice and also acquiring businesses that that were your choice. What is it that you look out for or what is it that you find make those best acquisitions? What what separates those that were successful from those that maybe haven't fulfilled or didn't fulfill the the goals that sort of were hoped at the start? I guess I think a lot of it, you know, we're 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 in a people business. So a lot of it comes down to have you got aligned views on what the future looks like and is that clear as you sort of set off on that road. So for example, if you're selling a if you're selling a product based business, very typically then the business that is sold, the owners, founders will, will pretty much exit fairly quickly out of that because what the acquirer is after is a product. In a people business, what you're trying to acquire is the future opportunity associated with that. And obviously, a lot of that is dependent upon the people and the services that those people have. And therefore, having a very clear vision of where those two things line up is pretty fundamental about what you're trying to achieve both for that organization, but also together and how that will fit into the wider organization. So I think that really aligned view and clarity around it are the things, the questions to ask as an owner as as you're going in. You know, I certainly very naively sort of saw it as a finishing line and and got to get to this thing because the sale process takes pretty much, you know, you're you're probably going to go for a year by the time you appoint an advisor, by the time you conclude, it's about a year. And it's exhausting because you're doing it alongside the day job and, you know, it's critical. The numbers all stay where they need to stay and you've got all the clients and everything else. So everything needs to continue as it is. And then you've got this secondary job where loads and loads of financial information needs to be provided. There are people crawling all over the business and, you know, due diligence is happening all over the place. So it's exhausting from a from an owner's point of view if you do not have anybody else who's going to do that for you. And so I'd kind of naively looked at it as a finishing line when in reality, very sage words from a lawyer that we're working with went say, yeah, don't, don't see this as a sprint. This is a marathon and you're only just about, you know, mile three. And it's like, oh, you know, you're probably right. I better read. I need to, I need to reframe how I'm seeing this in my head. And, um, you, you know, that, that certainly was, was, was very good advice, I think. So from a, from a status point of view, you know, those, those are the things to bear in mind is that, you know, really what somebody is looking to buy is that your future potential and how you are going to evolve the organization and, and can see the, see the future of what it is that you're trying to achieve. And from the, the acquirer side, I guess now you're on that side of the fence, is that the same things you're looking for? It's that very much that cultural, that people fit? Are there other things that you found sort of early indicators of success or that have proved most effective when those sort of you know, acquisitions have been made? 
I think it's it's really important from both points of view. You know that that that, that alignment is is really fundamental. I mean, you know, from an acquiring point of view, you're looking fundamentally looking at numbers and all those numbers are going to improve it, depending upon in the environment which we're operating, which is sort of a, a private equity owned business. Then that's that's the, the sort of one of the first things that you're going to look at. But you know, strategic fit overlap with other services that you're providing people really fundamentally do they culturally fit into the wider setup that you've got within your within your management teams and the business that you that you've got and and, and most importantly does that does their vision you know does your vision of what you're trying to do with that business if you acquired it and their vision of what would happen if you were if they were acquired going to align because if it doesn't that is never going to work well i think that's a really nice summary ben and actually to an extent answers what was going to be my next question. So I'm, I'm going to ask it anyway, just in case there's anything else. But you know, to your point around what works, I was intrigued given that journey you've been on actually of what those universal truths are in effect for, you know, for a successful services business, be that you know, a web agency, a digital agency, a management consultancy. And I think we've, we've teased a lot out during the conversation. So you might just answer this with everything I've said for the last hour or so, Nick, and we can move on. But I'm intrigued if there's anything else or sort of you know those those three things that do stick out to you and it if someone's asked you that question before what your what your answer has been i think for me it's about being client centric being customer centric you know the 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 reason that the products and services that we provide move every three or four years is because that's what the clients and the customers in the market needs they need something different because we're in a relatively fast moving industry things move move along and it's not really about the technology the technology is a byproduct you can build a a really great website on a really terrible piece of software if you know what you're doing or you can equally build a really terrible website on a really great piece of software it it it, it really comes down to being able to do do the job really effectively and really understanding what it is that your your clients are looking for and making sure that that you really understand their business objectives and what they're trying to achieve in that macro term and, and how you can go about getting getting a successful solution for them you know, that's, that's the business fundamental. If you get that bit right, then everything else becomes possible. If you can't get that bit right, then you're a bit stuck to start with. Very true, Ben. So I, I want to turn to one last section for today. And, and it's something that I think is, is becoming a lot more prevalent in, in our industry, but in, in all industries. And this is actually around your, your sort of pursuit of B Corp status that I, I know you, you and the sort of team are working on at the moment. And it, I guess it it ties in with something you mentioned earlier, and I, it's sort of a theme that's come through, you know, our conversation today and previously around, you know, always making sure you're doing the right thing. But I think it would be interesting, maybe in that that sort of frame of, of B Corp, of, of why are you doing that? Because I think it's it's becoming more popular, but it's obviously an investment. There's time, there's effort. Why is it so important to you? And and I also guess what other what advice would you give to other professional services leaders trying to weigh up whether it's something that they should also be focusing and investing in. So I guess BCOR has come from some of the other work that we were doing in in the background. We've been looking at BCOR on and off for a couple of years, but because of the status of both BHER then and and the, and the transition into MSQ, it's not been that straightforward to be able to move forwards much more quickly than that. But within MMT, we've been looking at our carbon output for for since about mid. 2019 and since the end of 2019 have been a carbon negative business and i guess it's all sort of a lot of it has has sort of grown up from around the work that started there so what is the impact that we as an industry are having on the environment around us by that environment that is both the the natural environment but also the people and everything else that goes along with it so the, the the internet has a has more carbon emits more carbon than the, the airline industry which is 
you know, which gets a terrible press for, you know, every time you jump on a plane, but no one really talks about every time you search on Google kind of thing and, and or power on your computer and everything else. And therefore, we have a responsibility to be actually doing more in that space, both as an organization to enable our and, and the work that we do with ourselves as a, as a corporate entity, the, the work, what we can provide to our, our employees and how we can help and advise them on things that they can do in their own lives to be able to sort of minimize that output. But then also actually the products and services that we provide and how we can try and lessen the impacts, which sounds like an odd thing to say, because, you know, if you look at a website, you look at a website, but actually the way that you build the website and the way that you host it and do all sorts of things associated with it can actually sort of lower the impact that you have and so that's sort of where a lot of this stuff started for us from a sort of looking more widely point of view and it's not that we weren't doing stuff before that it was just on a more ad hoc basis there wasn't really a sort of joined up view of it but what b core allows you to do i I think is to take a a holistic view and a measurement of how you are actually achieving or or whether you're achieving things at a at at an entity level because it's very easy to go well great we're doing a really good job with carbon negativity at the moment you know we can definitely do better and our goal is to cut our carbon output by 50 percent over the next three years as msq that's a you know it's a stated public goal and we will definitely be doing that despite the fact we're carbon negative at the moment but we will sort of be moving to do that to try and lessen our impact but actually there are other areas where we are not as strong and there are other things that we could be doing that's more important and the impact that we have not only for our employees and for our shareholders but also the environment and the communities in which we operate and the wider the wider environment and sustainability as a whole the suppliers that we use and all those kinds of things are actually i think going to become more and more important and should be more and more important in the way that business is done and b core is a is a is a good way for us to validate ourselves and are we doing a good job so yeah as you say we are it's not a particularly straightforward process. MSQ's got nine different agencies within it, and therefore it's quite complicated to be able to sort of get all of that aggregation of information. And B Corps is quite a rigorous process. It's a very rigorous process. But we're in the process of sort of working through that. We're very fortunate in that, you know, we've got leaders in the business who really care about this and, and are, are really driving it forwards. Um, and that, you know, we have a a full-time member of staff who is a sort of sustainability executive who who works within the business and, and she is working you know on on all of these different aspects within the business of which B Core is one so we as an organization are, are committed to delivering um in in this space because we think it's a really important part of what we should be doing i think it comes back to are we doing the right thing but also it's what the employees within the business would also expect us to be doing as well no, it sounds sounds great, and I think you're you know you are quite right. The airline industry gets a massively bad press, but actually, I'll have to reach for the find the stat somewhere. But it's something like you know the sort of server cooling accounts for far more. I'm sure I read a stat about Netflix and the impact that has or has had over lockdown because, like you say, the you know the, you don't think of it when you're going to Google or putting on you know what was Tiger King a year ago. Actually, the the carbon impact and. I'd just be fascinated. You mentioned there around you know the investment you're making. You've you've got a full time member of staff. It's a you know rigorous process to go for B Corp. Actually, what is that feedback you've had from clients and colleagues? Is this something that you're finding they're really responding to and they're they're almost demanding from you? Sort of what what are you you getting back from you know your clients and colleagues? So I think one of the challenges is that there isn't really a set standard at the moment so you know there are i don't know i've slightly lost track of the number of different sort of carbon measurement or carbon committed schemes that companies sign up to and we're you know we're 
we're equally guilty. We're signed up to certainly three or four of the, the more major ones, but there are a plethora of them. And so it's really difficult to know what that actually, that standard is and where it sits. So everybody would like us to be doing stuff in this space and doing as much as we possibly can be. The B Corps, I guess, is a, is a sort of trying to get to a standard because there aren't very many standards around that allow you to look at how you are achieving in different areas. And B Corps seems to be a really good international standard that is both recognized but also is consistent as well so you don't get different variances there are a couple of others around we're also in the process of doing eco vardis as well but that tends to be more on a not a commercial level but is more something which our clients might expect us to to have the eco vardis standards as well whereas b Corps tends to be more at a sort of an entity level type thing but yeah there is a very positive reaction to taking these things forward both from our clients and from our staff and you know, a willingness to support to, to be able to drive them forward. Fantastic. Well, Ben, our time together is almost coming to an end. And I'm conscious we're recording this in the middle of a work day. And I know you said you had meetings before. I suspect you're going to have meetings afterwards as well. So I've just got three last questions for you before we close for today. And these are ones that I ask all of my guests. So I love hearing the similarities, but also the differences. And so the first one is, is about books. And I should caveat this because I've had a number of guests say, books aren't my thing, but I listen to podcasts or YouTubes or magazines. So take books to mean whatever vehicle you reach for. But the question is, what book or books do you find yourself reading or gifting most often to people? And, and why is that? So, yeah, I probably fall into the category of, uh, it's not that I'm not interested by them, but if I read these kinds of books at the end of the day, I find that I've taken probably about 30 seconds of it and then I'm falling asleep. So I tend to do them as audible books whilst I'm doing something else. And I find that's a good way to sort of chunk up a good a good hour of listening to something. But I guess if I was going to pick three different books that are ha, ha, have sort of made me think over periods of time, and it's not necessarily that I think, you know, these are ways to to run your organization or to run your business but they're just i guess for me the certainly the first one was important the other two have made me think more recently about how organizations should be run and how best to to make things work the the first is a book called the lean startup which i suspect has been very commonly read but had a big impact on our business probably sort of 10 10 plus years ago about the thinking about how you both run your business but also for us, it was very much about the, that agile journey that we went on. How do we deliver software to clients and that iterative process and a, and a mindset and a way of thinking and trying to embed that into, into everybody that works within within the business. So really quite well known book by Eric Ries, but had, had a big impact, uh, big impact for us. So apologies if you've, if you've had that one thrown at you several times before. No, no. And as I say, and I, I love the uh, similarities and differences. One, one actually, just because it had a big impact on you and you mentioned 10 years ago, I mean, I, I read it probably seven years ago, let's say, is particularly given you work in the sort of tech and software space. I mean, do you feel it's just as relevant now as it was then? Is Have certain things changed? Or actually for anyone listening, you know, should they still pick up a copy of that lean startup if they're thinking of launching you know, a, a web agency or a tech company today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's a really good way of thinking. I, I don't necessarily think that the principles will apply to every single business, but if you apply the principles as ways of thinking, then yeah, I think it's, it's relevant to just about everybody. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's right, but it certainly gives you a, a way of, that you can choose to apply if it's appropriate for your organization. Makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, that's, that's probably a good way to look at a lot of these books. But I, I jumped in and I rarely, I, I shouldn't do that in this question. So please, you, you mentioned there was three. So that's one one down. I won't, I won't interrupt for the next two. No, no, that's right. I'll, I'll be brief with the other two. So, so the, the second one is a book called Alive at Work by Daniel Cable, which is how do you try and keep people engaged in the work that they're doing? 
And how beyond the initial six month honeymoon period do you try and sort of achieve that? And I should caveat that heavily by saying I do not think we've achieved that fully. But it's a really interesting way of listening to how people approach this across a huge range of different sectors and the theories and ideas that he has about how to try and try and solve some of the challenges that are raised in keeping people people engaged, particularly in businesses whereby, you know, he talks really interestingly about Google and some of the stuff that Google is very famous for, but then actually how it's changed a lot of its policies. So people sort of remember it for the, you know, the R&D days, but actually how it's changed its policies off the back of some of the things finally that didn't actually deliver on what it was hoping it was going to deliver. But a, a really interesting book, if you get the time to read it or listen to it. And then the last one is the book called Rebel Ideas by Matthew Saeed. Um, I've listened to a few of his books, actually. He's quite interesting in, in, a, in a number of areas and you know, has very clear points of view and those are mine. But uh, really, really interesting, particularly this one around diversity and why it's so important for businesses and not just because businesses should do it because it's the right thing to do, which it is, but also what the massive benefits that it can have to your organisations. And he talks about diversity in a whole range of different kinds of diversity. Um, and, and, and I found it a fascinating book and made me think quite a lot about the different ways in which diversity can be a, a positive within organisations. And that's way beyond the profit line level and into, into all the other benefits uh, and probably more important benefits it can have across your organisation as well. I think some great recommendations, Ben. And I, I, I'm smiling because actually Dan Cable is an, a name. I don't know if, how many people will know, but um, I actually saw him speak. This was sort of a long, long time ago. He came to do an event at a company I was with. I mean, he, he's brilliant. And I haven't read the book, but I'm sure the book is equally good. Um, and I need to add it to my list. And let's like, say Matthew said, I think probably more familiar with people. But, you know, that important point, as you say, um, I, I've listened or I'm listening to Bounce, which I know is sort of his his one before but you know that that point like you say around the diversity of thought and also now i whether you read a book or listen to it i'm also a big audible or sort of audiobook and podcast fan as well but i like reading but it's so much easier when you're on a run or in the car to, to have something on isn't it and i feel this may age me a lot but I'm now sick of the chat on Radio 1, Ben, and um, there's something in me that refuses to go to Radio 2 because it will make me feel old. So, you know, audiobooks is where I am as well. And so the the next question, and this again could be something that sort of wraps up everything we've spoken about, could be something different, but this is about advice. You know, we talked about some of those sort of university placement students that, that you've taken in and some you've sort of taken to the top of your business or worked their way up to the top of your business. And, and the question is you've got three people in front of you. One is just starting their career, so be those university placements or when they've just joined you as a graduate. The other is sort of four to five years in. So in, in consulting parlance, it'd be a manager, someone who's who's got enough skills to have choice. They, they'd sort of start to know what they want to be, be known in. And then the third one is someone at that partner level. So be it someone who's who's looking to launch their own business or taking that sort of director or you know CEO role in, in an agency. And I'd love to get your take on sort of what one piece of advice would you give to each of those three people? Sure. I guess starting out the career is probably grab every opportunity that you can. You're likely to think that, you know, I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm not qualified. You know, there are people much better qualified than me for doing this within the organization or I just don't have the confidence to do it. But and I, I think I'm definitely guilty of this is, is you know, I'm not or probably being having ha- had to probably more than anything else. I certainly probably wouldn't have volunteered to do some of the things you end up doing when you're starting your own business, but you sort of end up having to do them and you don't do it through choice. But it is just to grab everything you can that's in front of you because they're all experiences and, you know, that many of them will go wrong. And that's absolutely fine. You know, the important thing is to learn from them and to to take those learnings and, and how do you evolve that as you as you go forwards. I guess for the middle, you know, someone who's done four or five years is probably at that point where they are deciding whether they're going to specialize 
in what they do or whether they are going to perhaps go into management and that decision is not a straightforward one because the management one quite often looks like it is the great way to go and what you might find is that you end up not necessarily having had enough training in learning how to be a really good manager and managing a whole group of people the way you wish you were doing their job but you're now spending that your time listening to them rather than actually doing the thing that you enjoyed and so I guess it's just getting that that decision making process right take the time to really understand what it is you want and learn about that to really talk it through as to which of those two directions um, you're going to go down and, and then not you know it doesn't mean you can't end up moving back to one or the other down the line they're, they're certainly not the decision you make for for life but um that's certainly something which you know I, i've i've made some incorrect decisions i think um going backwards and, and and other people who've sort of certainly had conversations with me and pushed and pushed and pushed to be managers have then decided actually you know a year down the line this is a, this is a terrible mistake i definitely shouldn't have been doing this i want to go back to where i was excellent at what i was doing but i've i sort of moved into an area where i don't think that this is necessarily going to be me as i go forward i don't enjoy it and I, and I guess that idea of enjoyment really is you if you're approaching something as you become more senior is really funny what it is that you love what you really enjoy doing because if you're up at the level whereby you are in a position to make those decisions if you're getting to be choosing to be a partner or choosing to be a ceo or whatever it happens to be is is, is finding something you love because there will be you know challenges that come with that you'll get to be in a position, a very fortunate position to make a lot of decisions about what happens with an organization, but you'll also be in a position whereby there are inevitably some more difficult decisions that are going to float up your way as well. And so you need to make sure that there is a balance in those two things and that, you know, you're not just ending up in a position whereby you're having to make lots of difficult decisions and you're not not doing something you really enjoy, or, or it could be quite a, quite a challenging period in your life. No, some really, really good advice. And just to, I, I guess, just to close that manager point, how does that then, I guess, extend into that sort of final people who are thinking, right, do I want to be senior leadership? Do I want to start my own firm? Do I want to go to that director level? Or is that the same conversation around sort of middle management of specialization versus you only get more of the management challenges as you go up? Is that is that sort of the same challenge for those sort of people too? I think it slightly depends upon the the sector and the way in which the organisation is structured. It doesn't doesn't necessarily always run like that, but I think you know you will get more more management challenges if you are moving away from functional specialism and into general management. You are obviously going to get far more of the sort of the wider variance of challenges that come with those kinds of things that are organisational management challenges rather than do I make this choice around a technology or do I make that choice around a technology? They're, they're just different. No, completely agree. And I, I think, Ben, that nicely brings us to the end of today. I've, I've really enjoyed this and, and thank you very much. It's been great to to dig into the journey and you know hear how you've taken. I, I also, I was curious about what MMT stood for. So you've answered um, one of my big questions and, uh, and I think, you know, a fascinating journey, particularly, you know, given where you've gone from actually CD-ROMs, as we joked about earlier, to, to where you are now, because actually that world has transformed so significantly in that sort of 20-year period. And I think to your point of being alive to those changes and adapting and evolving, you know, has been so crucial because like you mentioned, there's some who haven't done that. And sadly, those businesses don't exist anymore. But by doing that, you've been able to to get where you are. So now I've I've really got a lot from today. So thank you very much, Ben. And I, I think the only last question to ask is for anyone who has listened to this, maybe they want to find out more about you know, the services you offer, maybe they want to find out more about the university leavers scheme. Where would you point people? Where can they get in touch? 
Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. I'm flattered that anybody is interested in uh, in what I've been up to across the 20, 20 year period, and I've, you know a lot of it has, as I say, has been sort of luck and happenstance, and I've been very fortunate with the people that have uh, you know I've worked with along that period of time. LinkedIn is 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 the best way to get hold of me, which is just my just LinkedIn and, and then my name basically, and I should appear somewhere near the, near the top of that list. I, I think uh, there aren't too many people with my name and um, that'd be great if anybody wants to get in touch, please do. Fantastic. And well, what we'll do is we'll put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so people can just, if you're listening to this, you want to find out where Ben is, just go to the website. The profile will be there. We'll do the same with your book recommendations as well um, so people can find you straight there or like you say, they can just put your name into to LinkedIn and you'll, you'll pop up. So Ben, thank you very much. And all that's left to say is enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you very much. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.